Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Mr. Michael Suddy on the topic, Architecture at the Service of Catholic Culture. This April 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Michael Suddy is an architect with Suddy Rofe Architects. I'm a sort of I'm fairly recent to, to architecture. I originally did a um, degree in mining engineering, and after a brief career, went to Europe and uh, spent a number of years uh, basically uh, following a vocation um, which I sort of identified as uh, serving the arts, which involved uh, doing a fair bit of building work to pay the bills, um, some sort of art studies that. Uh, colleges around the place. I uh, worked as a stonemason for a while and then as a uh, craftsman for monastery in Belgium and then uh, by the grace of God ended up at Notre Dame in the States uh, studying a Masters of Classical um, Architecture and Urbanism um, uh, in the States and also they send all their students over to Rome for, for some time. So. That's been a great, um, great privilege to, to do that, to do that study in such a great establishment that's doing such good work. Uh, Sydney has a BA of just about everything uh, to do with buildings, urban planning, a BA in the built environment, and a BA of architecture, and has uh, recently become uh, licensed practicing architect, been with the uh, REIA. Um, and we're currently doing work together. Um, our major project is uh, currently the uh, master planning for the Benedictine XVI Retreat Centre, um, working directly under uh, his eminence. Um, normally Sydney does the talking, uh, but I will kick off this evening and try and give you a flying tour of uh, classical architecture and. Uh, uh, too many things for the for the time given. So, yes, I will um, just stand up here, and then I can be the button presser. Excellent. And uh, just tell me where to press the button. Yes. And hopefully, um, hopefully, I'll be uh, speedy and brief and patchy enough that um, we have time to really get um, some good questions and discussion going about the uh, whole topic. Uh, so. Uh, no, that, this is what good for me, actually. Um, I'll kick off. So, just, this is a good slide. Uh, so, architecture, um, for all the Aristotelians out there, pertains to man's, produ man's capacity for productive reason, which is the uh, right reason in making things and uh, therefore pertains to the beautiful. Um, it is the art of building well. Architecture is concerned with the large scale, the city, right down to the smaller scale of furnishing an ornament. Uh, the lecture tonight is unfortunately not only about architecture, but the crisis which it faces, recovering from the errors of uh, modernist 20th century philosophy and its man manifestations in the built form. Um, a brief history of the modernist movement um, and how it relates to architecture. Uh, essentially, the uh, 
early 20th century was dominated by a uh, what one might call the uh, techno-utopian zeitgeist. Um, basically, uh, you know, it was an incredibly idealistic vision in which, um, you know, a lot of you know people really did believe that all of society's ills were going to be solved by advances in technology, technology and science. Um, and this had incredible uh, impacts on architecture. The uh, philosophy was accepted that the, that the house was a machine for living in. And a sort of search began for uh, the introduction of a new architecture. An architecture. Uh, spirit of the age. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a term that they uh, sort of use themselves really a, a driving force um, to direct art and, um, and whatnot. Um, the house became a machine for living in, uh, search for new architecture, um, and it was the spirit of the age, it was sort of the machine of a machine aesthetic, technological aesthetic, and, of, uh, and really a hope that mass production of housing would, um, would kick off and solve a lot of problems. Uh, as this modernist experiment ran its course throughout the century, uh, this really um, optimistic, idealistic spirit um, has really deteriorated into a, uh, into a disillusioned avant-gardism. So the new guard, always looking for, for the new solution that was uh, going to solve our problems, really ended up being a spirit of avant-gardism, which simply and in a very sort of institutionalised manner um, sought novelty in its architecture, uh, really simply for, for novelty's sake. Um, often under the guise of innovation, but it's far sort of deeper than that. It's, a, it's an aesthetic of innovation, whether or not the innovation is actually there. Um, the major problem that this has resulted in despite, apart from the um, sort of experimental architecture and this um, avant-garde spirit, was really a very deliberate and radical break from pre-modern tradition. Um, and really the architecture is institutionally anti-traditional, um, although one can identify now that modernism within its own context has established its own tradition. Um, and what is really important to understand that tradition is the collective wisdom from past generations. It's um, man's memory. And without that, uh, I think one can see from the, the manifestations of this movement that we really run into great problems. We now have a need to correct this there's no going backwards, it's like a bicycle. We have different ways to go forward, but we can't go backwards. The way we must move forward is to really identify the principles of building well and begin to, 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 to sort of rebuild beautiful and humane cities. Um, it's important to be proactive, not reactive. We should cannot fall into the dangers of um, historicism or antiquarianism. And, uh, and um, you know, make our buildings look old or pretend to. We really need to get back to the principles, understand them, so that we can 
meet the very real challenges um, of the future. Um, up here we see a uh, picture of uh, an architect from the first century BC who uh, really was incredibly concerned about problems facing architecture in his own time. Um, and he was the architect of Caesar Augustus, um, who is known as the architect, uh, the, the emperor who found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Um, so he was really at the uh, beginning of a, a major building revolution in Rome. Um, what was his name? Uh, Vitruvius. Uh, Marco Polius Vitruvius, or something close to that. Um, now, the, 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 the prior, he wrote 10 books on architecture, but really the, the three underlying principles that are the, the foundation for, um, for architecture that he identified, but which he really borrowed from the Greeks, um, are firmitas, utilitas, and venostas, which um, in English is firmness, commodity, and delight. So basically, layman's terms, build it to last, build it so it is useful, serves the needs of those in it, and venostas gives delight, um, it is beautiful. Um, Note also within the whole context of this discussion that, um, that classical refers to the artistic and intellectual stream of an, artist, of an architectural tradition. Um, liter literally, classical refers to the architecture of the highest class. Um, and in our sort of own tradition and culture, we're most familiar with this referring to the Greco-Roman tradition. Um, Although, and, and this includes also the, 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 the um, traditions of the Romanesque and the Gothic, but really every culture has its own classical um, intellectual artistic tradition, the Eastern and the Asiatic. Um, and these principles are identifiably guiding their own uh, classical and vernacular architecture um, as well. So, these are timeless and uh, universal principles. Uh, as, we, uh, as we sort of go through this talk, we'll be working down in scale from the city, down to the finer details of, of, of mouldings and ornament. Um, and we'll start with the city. Uh, and before I get that, I'll preface that with um, basically revisiting the concept of a city. And just borrowing from Aristotle. Uh, the city is a community of communities. A community is a collection of persons with a shared objective. Human beings are by nature social animals that thrive in cities. The city aims at the highest good, and the highest good, the best life of its members, the life of virtue, where virtue has external goods enough for the performance of good actions. Um, and uh, somewhere else, Aristotle writes that basically if one does not live in a city, in a community, um, which I think Christians are called to do, live in community, um, you know, one must either be a god or an animal. Uh, the, in this modern age, we basically see two major versions of, uh, of extremes of, of 
of, of where our cities have ended up with. Uh, first is the futuristic city, the techno-utopian vision, uh, which I think in some of these lower images you can basically see that it's at an inhumane scale. It's at a, uh, it's at a machine scale. You sort of see nice sort of deck chairs and a low-flying aircraft uh, going by, and I sort of assume it would take about half an hour to walk to the, to the next tower block in a Le Corbusier's uh, plan there. Uh, mind you, uh, which <laughs> I remind you, if you look at the top right-hand corner, that is his plan for Paris, which uh, involved the demolition of um, the, the the west side of the of the Seine, um, and he seriously presented this for uh, I think about ten years in a row. So um, thank goodness that didn't happen, although it really did happen um, in many other places of the world. Uh, this is an example of basically the perfect built uh, utopian city, uh, futuristic city, which is Brasilia, uh, capital of Brazil, built on a greenfield site. Um, basically, the architect had incredibly unlimited uh, resources, and it really is a wonderful execution of the plan. You know, architects would rarely hope for uh, such resources. Um, mind you, a friend of mine whose uh, father is an American diplomat, uh, I discovered from him that the American uh, Diplomatic Service pays their uh, staff who work there uh, a special allowance um, for hardship because this town is known as an incredibly boring place to be and uh, basically people work there and then fly out. Um, the other extreme we have here is uh, something which we're all familiar with. Uh, just, just, just one last thing with that, uh, with the uh, futuristic city. Basically, I mean, we we have some of that in the city of Sydney with the sort of enormous skyscrapers and whatnot, monofunctional um, sort of office spaces. And it's worth noting um, these cities have a monumentality when one looks at them from their skyline, but really that is a false monumentality when you consider that these enormous inhumane blocks consist of repetitive floors, um, identical floors of 2.5 metres um, spaces. So you have true monumentalities in a traditional city and really an overwhelming false monumentality um, in the modern city. Uh, and then quickly switching to suburbia, and I will try and speed this up. Um, has its roots really in uh, flustered sort of spirit of legality that arose after the French Revolution, where every man um, should basically thought he should have the right to um, have his own manor house, house in the country, aristocratic ideal. Uh, it's also a manifestation of individualism. Um, Previously, the only person that lived out um, in his own little bit of countryside was somebody who had to, like a farmer, or occasionally uh, the, the lord of the manor, which is a sort of its own uh, building type. Um, the ironic thing also is that once everybody builds their little house out in the country, um, unfortunately, as you can see in the top right-hand corner, the countryside quickly disappears. The 
uh, there, there's this sort of modern suburban um, situation that we see is um, also a result of uh, modern building codes which are basically supporting zoned living. Basically we have monofunctional zones, so you have a shopping zone, a inner city business zone, and then you have dormitory suburbs which are their own zone. Um, and basically the, the, the larger architectural establishment and especially politicians now um, are well aware and realising that, um, that this way of building is a cultural, environmental and social disaster. It's unsustainable. There are cities which we can look at in the States which are 20 years ahead of us, uh, like Detroit, which have um, basically the inner city looks like war zones and they have um, you know, massive freeway networks which are unmaintainable and uh, which the speed limit, speed is sort of like an average of 10 miles an hour. And it's also recognised that governments cannot build their way out of congestion. So, on a lighter note, um, let's now examine the elements of traditional human settlements. Uh, and this is actually a uh, contemporary town plan uh, for the city of Poundbury, which is um, largely, largely built um, and uh, is a project of the Prince of Wales, who's a um, great advocate for classical and traditional architecture. The, the elements of a traditional city, it is made of streets, squares and blocks. It is walkable, it is mixed use, residential, uh, business, basically people live and work and play within, uh, within essentially a five to ten minute uh, walk for, for most things in life. And you really see this, um, you know, if you have the opportunity, fortunate enough to, to, to live in, um, in any sort of traditional city, uh, particularly in Europe. Did you say Poundsbury? Poundsbury, yeah. In, Poundbury. In, in, Poundsbury. Oh, sorry, Poundbury. Poundbury, yes. Um, and uh, the, the, the political movement in America, which is promoting this and has promoted it quite successfully over the past sort of 10, to 20 years, um, it's now accepted mainstream. The political movement is known, ironically, as new urbanism, which is essentially promoting traditional urbanism. And uh, the, 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 there are a great number of projects um, which, are, which are underway in the States. Of course, uh, once you have developers involved, some of them uh, vary in quality. Um, some of them pay lip service to the principles rather than um, and following them, but uh, many of them are good and uh, the movement is extremely successful. So moving down in scale, just covering the building. Uh, one important thing for a building in a city is that um, it must be identifiable, identifiable by its type. It's important in the order of a city that if you see a church, well, if you see a building and it's a church, it should look like a church. Same with a public building, a private house should not look like a church. Um, and along the same spirit, the city is made up of foreground buildings, um, such as the public buildings, important buildings, 
but then the majority of the urban fabric is made up of background buildings. Uh, the most beautiful building should be a church. A building should be decorous, appropriate. It should contribute to the streetscape and the public realm and give heed to buildings in the street, to other buildings in the street. Uh, if you've had the fortune to, to go to um, Paris um, or really any other tra traditional city, you can really see how buildings recognise their their obligation to contribute to the public realm and to make the street and uh, that a building can be polite and respect um, respect the other buildings around it and let yet lose none of its um, individuality and, uh, and character and diversity. Buildings should be polite, a virtue necessary for the functional life and the polis, the city. Beauty. Aquinas tells us that beauty is that which on being seen pleases and that its basic characteristics are order, proportion and clarity. Alberti, great Catholic priest of the Renaissance and uh, wonderful uh, writer on all sorts of topics including architecture, tells us that it is, is, is the reasoned harmony of parts. Aristotle tells us that beauty is the imitation of nature and all of, the all of the above are correct. In the Catholic Catechism, we read that God reveals himself to man through the universal language of creation, the work of his word, of his wisdom, the order and harmony of the cosmos, which both the child and the scientist discover. And furthermore, created in the image of God, man also expresses the nature of his relationship with God the Creator by the beauty of his artistic works. So this is the evangelical dimension of, of art and beauty. Beauty can reveal God to man and dispose his soul to God. The in the in the in the composition of a building, the architect works to create a composition of harmony, order and proportion. A discussion of how he does this is really beyond the scope of this lecture, but what is important to note is the harmony and proportion of the parts are seen to reflect and uh, the, the harmony and order found uh, in nature. And these relationships are explored and demonstrated in, um, in the iconic Vitruvian Man um, that we see up here by Leonardo da Vinci, which he drew uh, based on the, on the writings of Vitruvius. Um, and we also see up here on the lower left-hand side the, the uh, is it the helical, or it's a... Basically, a construction based on the golden section, the golden mean, um, which is a particular proportion which is found repeated in nature um, and which is also uh, found in architecture. Um, and really, there's, there's a whole sort of science and maths and you know, lots of amazing connections that can be found within the arts and comparing the proportions found in music to a beautiful room and so on and so forth. Um, 
which sort of fall under the study of uh, you know what some might term divine proportion. Uh, so there really is the there really is an objective beauty which can be um, can be ascertained um, in 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 the art of architecture. Uh, tectonic logic mix. Um, it's worth mentioning that um, a building, in order to be beautiful, uh, must be ordered. It must begin with right reason, reason in the assemblage of its parts. Uh, this might be called tectonic logic. Uh, tecton, uh, being a carpenter, it's basically the, the logic of a carpenter, the logic of how things put together. And uh, this, 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 this order and logic is celebrated and uh, monumentalised in architecture. The picture on the right-hand side is from a uh, fairly recently built Catholic church in New York, which really shows a uh, failing in the basic understanding of, uh, of, of how the parts go together. It's, um, you really you sort of see the arch coming down onto sort of free air with the pilaster underneath missing it. And it's, it's not enough to stick mouldings on and think that you're creating good architecture. You know, it, it is not beautiful. And um, it sort of demonstrates that desire is not enough and that really, um, you know, we need education, we need school design. Ornament may be defined as a form of auxiliary light and complement to beauty. Uh, it is an embellishment upon the primary framework of beauty. So beauty must be there um, underlying from the start. Ornament in the form of mouldings can express the poetics of tectonic logic. They can express the way in which a building holds itself up in the face of gravity, providing a sense of comfort to uh, to the viewer. The embellishment of a base of a column uh, with its bulging, um, as you can see, expresses the weight borne by a column. And conversely, at the top, a building is, uh, is always crowned by a cymorector molder, which crowns the building, expressing the termination and uh, tightness. Uh, Sima reversa, a reverse wave moulding, or bed mould, expresses a load borne. So there is, a, there is an order in language in a similar way that um, uh, with, the, with the spoken language uh, in which all these parts are put together in a, in a logical and, um, and rational way which celebrates the underlying order. Uh, this ornament can of course also be used to embellish the building with iconography and symbol to celebrate and teach. Uh, the, the, this language still speaks to people whether they are particularly knowledgeable of it or not. One can see the importance of uh, a traditional public building. Um, however, there's also more profound symbolism that can be that can be read into these things and. Um, Particularly with the with the, the refinement of the, the classical language and the, the orders of architecture, the Doric, Tuscan, Doric, 
uh, ionic Corinthian composite and so on, which pertain to different, um, you know, to the masculine and the feminine, and the, the maiden and the virgin and so on and so forth. And if one looks up at the top left-hand corner, um, it's a little bit small, but you'll notice that in the foreground of the um, of the loggia in which a lady is kneeling before the angel, you can see that the uh, that the, the, the columns are capped by Corinthian capitals, which are symbolic of the Virgin. And if you look at the rear of the loggia and on the side there, you'll see that Fra Angelico has painted um, the, 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 the columns with Ionic capitals. So you really have this very unusual mixing of the, mixing of the orders, which um, only makes quite sense when you understand that he's referring to the to the aspect of Mary as being virgin and mother. Um, that ends your flying uh, introduction to um, some principles of classical architecture, classical and traditional architecture. And um, I'd just like to quickly address some common uh, critiques that are levelled at practitioners of, of classical and traditional architecture. Firstly, that architecture must be of its time um, and in response to that, um, I would say that all architecture is necessarily of its time. Um, however, architecture, on the contrary, should aim at timelessness and permanence and really not be subject to fashions and fads. Christopher Wren um, Expresses it as, as um, you know, architecture should should aim at the eternal. Two, that traditional classical architecture is all pastiche, um, and unfortunately, you know, such pastiche is prevalent. Um, however, I'd sort of add that you know, it really has nothing to, you know, well, often unfortunately, it has very little to do with uh, the principles of classical architecture. Um, except the word pastiche? pastiche stuck on, yeah. So um, basically, you know what what you sort of often see around the place with a boxy building or commonly supermarkets that um, have a go at regionalism in architecture and um, you know stick stick things on their buildings, gables with no roofs behind them or columns with. Um, with two bases, you know, one base at the one base at the top, and it's um, cheap, cheap, cheap uh, reproductive elements stuck onto a building, essentially. Um, so, unfortunately, it has very little to do with the principles of architecture, um, but it does expose a popular and um, an unlearned response, um, a, a, well, uh, reaction um, against the impoverished products of modernist architecture and, um, you know, really, really reveals a thirst for, for, for something else. Um, number three, that, uh, that, that traditional architecture is not innovative. Um, traditional architecture has a, has a wonderful track record of um, of being incredibly innovative. However, traditional architecture innovates based 
on the telos of architecture, its end, um, which is to uh, which which is basically to, to to make the the building more firm and more permanent, more useful, um, adapting to, to new requirements that are faced, and more beautiful. So yes, use a new technology if it helps you do those things. And um, you know, and great architects of the past have always have always uh, been up to that challenge. Um, and one can sort of uh, compare that approach to, um, to to a lot of modernist architecture out here um, that we sort of see today, which basically the spirit of modernism demands innovation for its own sake. Um, and really what you see a lot of the time is that, in fact, there's no innovation. It's simply a, a pretension of innovation. Um, and uh, the, the fourth critique is that, you know, traditional architecture and classical architecture is, um, is, is simply no longer possible. And uh, I would, uh, I mean, basically, you know, you will see later on, we'll show you some examples where, you know, people, it, it, it is being done. It is possible. And not only that, it's really um, incredibly important uh, that we start doing a lot more of it. Um, a, return to, a return to architecture firmly footed, uh, okay, contemporary challenges. Uh, first of all, there is a desperate need to reform architectural education. Um, the Catholic University where I studied in the States about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, really was incredibly avant-garde. And um, the, the head of the school, Thomas Gordon-Smith, um, basically introduced a new program of architecture which threw out, the, threw out the, the, the modernist program and they did start to take a more critical look at modernism and teach kids how to do, design beautifully um, and, and, and learn from the past. Secondly, um, the general public must be educated, um, and that's just a little effort here tonight. Uh, and I guess the the, the the second thing is that you know architecture is a it's a, it's a cultural exercise. It's a, it's a community exercise. It's not it's not done by one person, and there needs to be a change in the culture to encourage more of these projects. We also need sculptors and painters and builders and plumbers and, and patrons. Um, along the same note, I think um, you know, it's very important that Catholics understand the need to embrace an architecture that can truly serve its communities. Uh, sort of having grown up in Sydney, I think you can sort of identify trends where a lot of good Catholics basically fly from the city, um, either to suburbia or out to the bush. Um, and there really is a need for architecture that can truly support their communities. 
um, in architecture that is humane and beautiful. And that's it. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Mr. Michael Suddy. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.